Arguing for the defendant, remember we learned that the structure of a court of 23 is so there'd be a possibility of 10 of the 23 defending, 10 of the 23 prosecuting. And we also learned earlier that there has to be at least some people defending for the court to be a court. If there was one of the judges who were of the defense or of the prosecutors, why did he argue not guilty? Why did he argue guilty? Not because he feels guilty or not guilty, not because logically he understands. Not because it makes sense to him, because he knows that in this court there's a very smart guy. His name is Rabbi Moshe. Whatever Rabbi Moshe says is good enough for him. He followed somebody else's opinion. That way he doesn't have to think. Doing that is actually a transgression of a negative commandment. Regarding this it says, There's a verse and he reinterprets the verse. Do not respond to a dispute with an inclination. Lintes would be here, an inclination. Don't say guilty or innocent because you're inclined to do so because you're copying somebody. From tradition we learn, that at the time when they're counting votes, you should not say, die. It's good enough for me if I vote like this with this guy, because he's a smart guy. Say what you think. We need your opinion. We have a court of 23 because we want 23 people's opinion. We don't want copycats. There's a beautiful story in Hasidic tradition. <coughs> Excuse me. That there was a Rebbe, a great Hasidic master who passed away, and his son filled his position and became the Rebbe. A few months later, a group of Hasidim, a group of disciples, came to this new young Rebbe, and they said, you know, Rebbe, you're not at all like your father. Your father did this, and you do this. Your father did this. You should become more like your father. Why are you trying to introduce new customs? So he said, you're missing the point. I am exactly like my father. My father did not mimic or copy anyone, and I don't mimic or copy anyone. And that's what Torah requires. Every judge should be an original thinker. Which is why we have learned, and we will learn, that they always ask the junior judges first for their opinions. Because they're afraid once the senior judge will express his opinion, the junior judges will be intimidated. And they won't want to disagree with them. We start from the bottom. We want originality and creativity. We want free thinking. Including in this... Negative commandment. The Torah is so interested in giving the defendant who's accused of a capital crime a fair trial. The Torah wants judges to argue in his defense. Once a judge presents an argument in his defense, we don't want that same judge presenting an argument to prosecute. Now again, I have to define what we're talking about here. In the American court system, we have defense attorneys who defend, and we have prosecutors who prosecute. The defense attorney gets up and speaks and speaks and speaks. The prosecutor gets up and speaks, has an opening statement, he, has, he presents the closing statement, they just talk and talk. In a Jewish court, all of this is done by judges. Once a judge has stood up and did and given an argument to defend, we don't want that same judge to prosecute. It would be like in the American system of court of law. If the defense attorney suddenly becomes a prosecutor, that's a problem. It's enough we have a prosecutor. Let the defense attorney defend if he has something intelligent to say. So also this judge who began with an argument of defense, which is a good thing, let him not switch horses in midstream. Now again, we said this earlier, it doesn't mean that at the end when they take the vote, he cannot vote his conscience. If he argued to defend, in the end he can vote guilty, no problem. But that's not in the process, it's in the end. <clears throat> Do not respond to a dispute with an inclination. Suddenly, you're inclined to another argument. Now, he clearly says this. When does this law apply? At the debate stage. But at the final stage, where they take the vote of every judge, if that's his conscience, and even somebody who argued to exonerate earlier can convict. Gimel, interesting law. Talmud. We learned, and we will learn, that the system is that there are 23 judges, and then they have another 23 judges, another 23 people who are disciples, and another 23 people sitting around in a horseshoe. These are called disciples. If there's a disciple who has something intelligent to say, He's welcome to step up to the podium and speak. Talmud, if there was a disciple. And then what did they do? He becomes part of that court. They add him to the court. It's not easy to become a disciple. And therefore, some say that they have to add two to the court. Otherwise, it would be an even court. What if this disciple was arguing for exoneration? Well, Mason, suddenly he dies. He gets a heart attack. He dies. 
we assume that he's a lie and we advocate his position, so we count his vote. Why? Again, these are all laws to add to the defense of the defendant. If one guy says, yes, I have an argument for defense, finished not take, and suddenly he lost his ability to speak, after he suffered a stroke or what have you. He became mute, a mace, or he died. Created for Yilamitzchu is before he expresses his idea, the game of Mesa Tamazaki, and before he expressed the logic behind his inclination to defend, this guy we don't count. Why? Because he never expressed his logic. We don't take it on faith. Torah is logic. What if two students, or he says here perhaps two judges, argue one rationale, even if they're basing it upon two texts, they're only counted as one. Because the Torah has one law that comes from one text. So basically, we don't want copy, uh, copycat arguments. I do not believe that this applies to the final vote. I think in the final vote, everybody has a right to vote. I believe. And here he says what I pointed out earlier. From tradition we learn, that in capital matters, you do not start from the senior members of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps every, imagine, Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting on the Sanhedrin, Moses himself, and he issues his opinion. Who's going to disagree with Moses? Therefore, we have Moses issue his opinion last. Perhaps everyone else will rely on his opinion. And they will not find themselves worthy to debate him. Everyone will say something which appears to him. And that's why you start from the minor member of the Sanhedrin first. Also, you never begin in a capital matter with an argument for prosecution. Always, you begin with defense. And I believe that in the Western system, it's not so. The prosecution always opens up. In the Jewish system, the defense, meaning a judge for the defense should open up. Ketzad, for example, what's an example of opening up for the defense? We speak in terms of innocence. We talk to the guy, we tell the guy who sinned, we talk to the accused and tell him, if you didn't do this and this thing, do not be afraid of their words. If you're innocent, you have nothing to fear. I've shared this many times, many years ago, when I was about to sign a mortgage on one of the Chabad properties. The bank, after months of negotiation and so on and so forth, the banker put before me a stack of documents that were probably 100 pages. And he said, sign here. So I said, uh, I'm happy to sign. Thank you very much. But do I have to know what it says here? Do I have to read it? He says, well, that's up to you. But uh, he says, not really. If you're going to make your payments on time, I assure you, nothing it says here will hurt you. If you don't, I assure you, nothing it says here will help you. So you know, what's the purpose in reading it? They tell him, if you're innocent, don't worry about all this procedure. Nothing's going to hurt you. That's a way of beginning with an argument for innocence. What if, in a case of capital law, one of the students says, yes, I have an argument for prosecution. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's just a student sitting around. We silence him. We're not looking for prosecution from the disciples. Omar, if he said, I have defense, argument. They promote him to the Sanhedrin to participate in the debate. If he has substance, they hear him out. And he never descends back down. I'm sorry. If he has no substance, he stays there for the rest of the day. Furthermore, I feel Omar Anid Natsma, even if the defendant himself says, Yeshli Lalamid Alatsmishus, I have an argument for my defense. Shaminlay, we hear him. Now here in some Rambam it says, Ba'ila Laminion, he's counted as one of the judges. Obviously, as the Lechamishan points out, that's a mistake. He never counted the defendant as a judge. You just allow him to express his opinion. The who shall yeah bitwar, as long as there's substance in what he says, you let him express himself. You know, in Western law, there's always the big question. Is the defendant going to testify in, in a criminal case? Why? Because no one can be forced to testify in Western law. In Jewish law also, a defendant cannot be forced to testify. But if the guy says, hey, I want to make an argument on my defense, as they say in Russian, Pujalista, go right ahead. Test, the closing paragraph in chapter 10. What if the courts made an error in a capital case? They made a mistake. They're only human. Again, we're talking about a court of 23 or a court of 71. That's a lot of members to make a mistake. And they found the defendant who should be declared not guilty by law. They found him innocent. They made an error in the law. In, in the Western world, this would be a very good case for an appeal. And they found him guilty. And they found a good reason to contradict the ruling, the judgment, and to now 
find him innocent, say him, they contradict because a huge error was made. Why? Because it's obvious, an obvious error. And they retry him. So they call a mistrial and a retrial. Avalim told, but if their error was, and they found not guilty someone who should be guilty. You do not contradict the ruling. You don't bring him back. In the Western world, this is called double jeopardy. You don't try a guy twice. If you found him innocent once. When does this apply? Here, the Rambam is going to use a point of reference which has to do with a group of people who are known as the Sidukim, the Sadducees. And we learned extensively about them in other laws in the Rambam. They were a very sometimes popular and substantial group of Jews who denied the oral law and admitted to the written law and had another version of Judaism. And there were some times in history when they caused a lot of heartache for the Jewish people. The Sadducees, they were called. Basically, they denied the validity of the oral law. They only accepted the written law. So, if the error was in something that even the Sadducees would agree with, that's a pretty big error, then we just reverse it. Ah, but in tow, if the mistake was, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. If the mistake was in an argument that the Sadducees would not agree with, then that's something we don't reverse. But if the error is in something that even the Sadducees agree with, that's a big error. They cause him to come back and retry him even for guilt. So here's a case where because of the huge legal error made, they do try the fellow a second time. And here the Rambam gives an example. Ketzat, for example. Now, in order to understand the example, in Torah law, we have learned about it, and we will learn about it. When speaking about the prohibitions against forbidden intimacies, forbidden relationships of intimacy, there is a plural term used in the Torah, and that is mishkevei isha, plural. Acts of intimacy, plural. That's used in Vayikra, Leviticus indicating that in general, when we talk about intercourse, which is the act that is required in order for a death penalty to be able to be applied in any type of biblical intimacy prohibition, there are two types of intercourse. There is what we call, and I'll use the, the modest interpretation, there is what we call normal intercourse and abnormal intercourse. So by Torah law, even abnormal intercourse is called intercourse, and therefore there can be capital punishment. Ketag, for example, what was the error of the Sanhedrin? Only if they erroneously said that if somebody engages in an act of intimacy in an abnormal manner, in an unusual manner, property is exempt. That's a mistake, because we just talked about the fact that there are two types of intimacies by Torah law, and they're both culpable. They're both liable. Uftaruhu, so in the case of this court, the court exempted him, and they made a big mistake. They were ignorant. Machzirin, they say, they bring him back to trial. Machzirin, they say, and they can even put him to death if all the procedures work as they should. Ah, but if their mistake was a much lighter, much more liberal mistake, if they said, that just the very beginning of intercourse in an abnormal intimacy, Potter is exempt. We're not talking about a full penetration, but just the very beginning. Uftaruhu, and they exempted him for this. This is not a Normal intercourse. This point is not accepted by the Sadducees. Ein I say you don't bring it back to court. This is an example. Anything similar to this, if there is an obvious error in biblical, even biblical law, where even the Sadducees would agree, there could be a retrial, and we don't worry about what we call in our world double jeopardy. But if it's a fine line of law, where the Sadducees would not accept it because it's rabbinic interpretation, then, although we want to follow truth, justice, and the American way, nevertheless, we do not want to expose this fellow to a retrial or double jeopardy. End of chapter 10. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Sanhedrin, the courts, the ancient Amasudim and the punishments handed over to them, to their authority. Now we get into a very interesting chapter, Peter Kachadoso, chapter 11. And of course, all of this is based on the Mishnah and the Talmud in Sanhedrin. What are some of the differences between financial litigation, financial matters, and capital matters? Number one is that financial law, cases involving financial matters, Bishlesha can take place even with three judges. This is what is commonly referred to as a Bedin, a court of three. Dine Neboshes, anything involving capital cases, the Esri Mishlesha must have a minimum of 23. Dine Mominus, financial matters, Peschin, the first of the judges can open the agenda, whether for the benefit of the litigant, or the detriment. We don't care what the first argument is. Anything having to do with capital offenses, as we learned earlier, we always begin with some argument for the defendant, for acquittal. As we explained, we never open up with a statement of prosecution. 
Dinim Amen is financial matters. I'm sorry. When it comes to financial matters, we can rule with a majority of one, whether it will benefit the dependent or the litigant, or it won't. Dinim Apostrophe capital issues. A majority of one can only rule for the benefit of the dependent. But a majority of two is required for anything that finds him guilty. financial matters. If new information or new documents are revealed, we come back and we open the case, whether for merit or for prosecution, for not so good. And life and death issues, capital issues, we only bring back the court into session. This is for merit. If new information comes around, once the person has been declared not liable or not culpable, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, we don't open, we open the case. Commission beyond double jeopardy. Financial matters. Anyone can say something for the benefit of the litigant or for the detriment. Whether one of the judges, or one of the disciples of the judges who sit around the judges. When it comes to capital matters, everybody can speak for the defense. Even the disciples, but only the judges who are formerly part of that court of 23 can speak for the prosecution. Financial matters. The judge who finds culpability can change his mind and find defense and argue defense. And one who argued defense can then find culpability, argue culpability. But when it comes to life and death, stuff, the opposite is true. Anybody who argued for dismissal for not guilty can then go argue. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Anyone who argues for the prosecution can go, the same fellow, and argue for the defense. But somebody who argued in the beginning of the presentation of the arguments for defense, he cannot go back and argue for the prosecution, except that at the end of the day, when the case is about to be closed and we need a final vote, he can associate himself with those who find guilty. To make sure the honor, as we explained, financial matters. Another difference between the two, done in by game, we judge by day, and we can complete this case going into the night if necessary, if the case drags. We can even complete and conclude the case at night. Capital matters done in by aim. We can judge or adjudicate by day. We must finish by day. If not, we continue into the next day. Financial matters. We can have the whole case open and shut in one day, whether it is for or against the defendant or the litigant. But when it comes to capital matters, only a dismissal can happen on that same day. Only a not guilty verdict. But if there's any inclination of finding guilt, then you must push it into the next day. They have to, so to speak, either sleep on it or debate it all night or what have you. But they can't conclude on that same day. They have to carry it over to the next day. Bays to has an outgrowth of the above. Therefore, we cannot adjudicate, we cannot judge capital matters not on the day before Shabbos, not on a Friday, and not on the day before a festival. Perhaps the case will go towards guilt. And it's impossible to kill the person if they find him culpable. If they find him guilty, we need to implement the death sentence immediately. Immediately would be tomorrow. Tomorrow, the court would conclude and issue its verdict and they would kill him. But you can't do it because it's Shabbos or it's the festival. And you can't stretch the process and leave it till after Shabbos. Therefore, let's not start the case. Let's not begin the case. Erev Shabbos or Erev Yontem on the eve of Shabbos on Friday or the day before a festival. We lock him up until Sunday. We don't begin the case until Sunday. Even though by Torah law we can deal with financial matters every day. They can judge the people at any time. By rabbinic law, we were taught that it's not even good to do this on Erev Shabbos, on Friday, because the judges and everybody involved has a lot to do on a Friday. Whether we're talking about life and death laws, capital, or we're talking about laws that could involve lashes, or the city of refuge, laws with people who are guilty of manslaughter or may be guilty of manslaughter. The above laws are all equal, all the same, except that laws involving lashes require a court of three and no more. And none of the above apply to an ox that might be stoned, except for one, because it needs a court of 23, but you don't need all the other severities mentioned above. That's the meaning, I believe. Now we come to a serious exception to the rule. Excuse me one second.
And that is the law of Macy's, not to be confused with the store in Southern California. What is Macy's? A Macy's is someone who entices someone to transgress specifically and to worship idols. So he's like this idol missionary who walks around and tries to get everybody to become an idol worshiper. The Torah has most severe implementation of law with regard to this Macy's. A Macy's is the law of the person who tries to get others to transgress and, and worship idols. Although it is a capital punishment law, the laws are not the same as all other capital laws. They're much stricter. We learned earlier, we do not entrap people. We don't have witnesses hiding behind a wall. Today, uh, the FBI is all about entrapment. They put wires on people and record people and hide people and set up people. Today, they, they arrest and try people and do God knows what to people. We're trying to do something illegal, not in reality, but with an FBI agent who's parading around as if he's an interested person. The whole thing is a lie. In the case of Judaism, none of that is permitted. You can't hide witnesses behind a wall and get people to confess and all that stuff. Except for Macy's. Except for this idolatrous missionary. We can't hide witnesses to observe that. We can set him up and trap him. He does not require to be warned by two witnesses and told this is a prohibition and he will be killed. Like with all other situations, he does not require that. And if he leaves the court with a judgment of not guilty, somebody suddenly says, boy, do I have an argument which can put him away, which can kill him. Yes, I have a prostitution argument. We bring him back so there's no double jeopardy law. He comes out and he's found guilty. One guy says, yes, I have an argument for the defense. We do not bring him back. We do not suggest defense for him. We learned earlier that one of the judges in life and death capital courts should not be someone who's very old or a eunuch, because these are people who lost their compassion, or someone who has no children. Here, in this case, give him the old guy, the old angry guy. Give him a eunuch who's angry. Give him someone who has no children. Today, we don't want people being compassionate, because he is a fellow who pushes idol worship upon innocent Jews. Because to be overly strict upon these, to fool the people who entrap people, to follow ways of emptiness. To get these guys is a great compassion, a great mitzvah. As it says, God Almighty shall return from his state of anger, and will give you compassion. Therefore, it's good to get these guys. Of course, it has to be truth, justice, and the American way, absolutely, but with more severe interpretations. They tell an adorable story, it's probably a joke, about this fellow who was approaching Yom Kippur, and he turned to his friend and he says, my dear friend, I, I realize I have a serious problem. I'm going into Yom Kippur, I didn't sin this year. How can I stand all Yom Kippur and say, I sinned, I sinned, I'd be lying. So I don't know what to do. His friend says, you're absolutely correct. So let me tell you what I suggest. I know that you're a very nice fellow, but sometimes you need to be tough. Your next-door neighbor, he's an animal, and he's a real bad guy, a real schlechter. Why don't you go into him and just beat him up, beat him to a pulp, and that way, you'll at least have done a sin. He walks into his next-door neighbor, he says, hey, you, boom, boom, and he beats him to a pulp. And he says, I feel better, now I can go to shul, and I can tell God I sinned. As he's walking off the porch, the neighbor's wife said, mister, mister, what a mitzvah you just did. <laughs> Life isn't easy, let me tell you. Okay. I'm a salute check. Uh, where are we here? Gimel. Dini mamen is financial, even though by biblical law you can judge every day. No, I'm, I'm not in the right place. We're at six. You always have the senior judge speak first. Why not? He knows what he's talking about. The shaman is born and we listen to him. And then the other judges say they agree, they disagree, but the of when it comes to life and death law, as we learned earlier, we want every judge to speak his conscience. He'll be intimidated once the senior judge speaks. We start off the side with the junior judge. We don't hear the words of the senior judge or the head of the Supreme Court, the Moshe of the Sanhedrin. We hear his opinion last. You can have a father and a son. Or Harabi Talmida, a teacher and a student, you can count them for two opinions or two judges. Meaning, the student and the teacher are one. The student and the teacher have not yet developed separate opinions. So we're not having two separate judges, but still, it's financial matters. It's not so terrible for him to issue an opinion. However, life and death matters, capital, Amakas, and lashes, the sanctification of the new moon, a leap year, a father and a son, a teacher and a disciple, even if they issue arguments, they're still counted as one. Until he's given the status of a full member of the court. Then a disciple could become a member of the court. A son not, because he shouldn't have father and son in the court. 
If the witnesses say, we do not know him, we're not sure. We think he's the guy, but maybe not. They all look the same. There's an old Yiddish saying, which my mother of blessed memory used to often use. All Greeks have one face. You're looking at it, if you don't know Greece, and you don't know what a Greek looks like, to a non-Greek, every Greek looks the same. So, if they say we're not really sure on your stopping one, maybe yes, maybe no. They said, you know what, we saw him do it, but we didn't really warn him. In all these cases, this fellow cannot receive a death penalty. He's completely exempt from this possibility. Now, the question is, and this is a big question in Jewish law, debated in the Talmud, who needs to be warned? Well, we understand that a plain guy has to be warned. What about a great Torah scholar? Does he have to be warned as well? He knows. So he says, both a great Torah scholar, both of them need to be warned. Sometimes people do something inadvertently. They don't even realize they're doing it. That would apply to a scholar as well. who Maybe it was inadvertent. So therefore, the warning will clarify, will establish that it was not inadvertent. How do we warn him? We say to him, separate yourself from the deed you're about to do. Hey, don't do it. This is a transgression. You could be liable to receive the death penalty. Or in other scenarios, you could be liable to receive lashes. In Pedash, if he separated himself and stopped doing the deed, then he's exempt. Because the warning accomplished its mission. Also, if he was silent, or he nodded his head, he's also exempt. Because we're not really sure what's going on in his head. Even if he says, I know that's not enough. He's still exempt from death penalty. He actually has to verbally place himself in a death penalty condition. He should say, I know there's a death penalty, but I don't care. That's why I'm doing it. I could care less about you and your death penalties. Only if he does that, then he could be killed. So obviously, there's no entrapping people. Obviously, there's no I saw. There has to be a real process here of verbal warning by kosher witnesses and the guy saying, I know, I don't care, and so on. Furthermore, it has to be immediate. He has to transgress and do the deed. Take it immediately. Right after the warning. What does right after mean? An hour, a half hour, 20 minutes. No. It has to be within the span of the time it says it takes for a student to say to his rabbi, Shalom Alecha Rabbi, or others say, Shalom Alecha Rabbi Umori. Peace to you, my teacher, my master, or peace to you, my master and teacher. So what is that, three seconds, four seconds? It's not very long. Shalom Alecha five seconds, I don't know, depends how quickly you speak. So if more than that span passed after the warning, you've got to start doing the warning. People can't remember for very long. But after that span of time passes, where the person could have said, Shalom Alecha Rabbi, or Shalom Alecha Rabbi Umori, not a very long time, another warning would have to be given. Now, who has to give the warning? Well, ideally, the witnesses, but whether one of the witnesses gave the warning. Or another person gave the warning before the witnesses. The witnesses have to be there. I feel Isha, even a woman gave the warning, and we learned that by Torah law, in most situations, a woman is not acceptable for a witness in court. She is acceptable, we said, under certain circumstances, to reveal facts. Like, this is kosher, this is not kosher, this is, this isn't, but not as a court witness, or a servant. I feel Isha, I feel even if the guy heard the voice of the fellow warning him, but he didn't see him. I feel Isha, even if he warned himself, he says, I know you're not allowed to do this, but I don't care in front of the witnesses. He could be killed. Others say that I feel the of means the victim warned him in front of witnesses. Okay, Gimel, what if the witnesses said, he had a warning, and we know him, and the court scares, intimidates the witnesses. How does the court intimidate the witnesses? When it comes to capital issues, the court says, perhaps you're speaking. You're guessing, you're estimating, you think that this guy probably is the guy. Or you heard someone else say, one witness said to another witness, even someone you love and trust. You heard it from a very trustworthy person. You heard Abe Lincoln himself say it. Or perhaps you're not aware that this is just the beginning of the process. By the time we get through with you, we're going to interrogate you. We're going to ask you a lot of questions. Cross-examination, and we learn in great detail in the Mishnah and the Gemara what is Drisha, what is Chachira. I'm going to learn in the Rambam as well that there are various sets of questions that are posed to a witness in a capital case. 
We tell him, if you're a witness in financial matters, what have you lost already? Worst comes to worst, you'll pay what you cause the other person to lose. To lose. Other nation, a person pays the money. When it's copper land, he's forgiven. Dean and Abbas, when it comes to life and death issues, his blood, the blood of the guy you caused to die, the dams are in the blood of the children that he never had, as it says with regard to Kayan. Kuyumbe are hanging over him, I'd say, until the end of the world. What does it say with regard to Cain and Abel? The sound, the voice of the bloods of your brother Abel are crying out. Why plural? His blood and his children's blood. Because when a person is killed, then never, ever, ever can he reproduce. Therefore, here comes a very famous teaching in the Ramah. The Rebbe quoted this hundreds of times. That is why man was created only one. When God created man, you know, he could have created a city. He could have created a dozen, a minion. God created one solo human being. He didn't even create a couple. That's why man was created as an individual. To teach us. That if somebody slays or kills one individual, he's considered as if he destroyed an entire world. And there are many famous stories during the Nuremberg trials, where the fellow defended himself, it was only one person. He says, one, six million, it's all the same. One person is a world. Six million are six million worlds. You can't cheapen one life. If you begin to cheapen one life, then life has no value. In that case, six million is only value. Anyone who saves one life in the world, it is considered as if he saved the entire world. And he goes on to elaborate. This is a famous rumble. And everyone, every creature in the world, are created in the form of Adam. People are people. They're all little atoms. Yet no two people look alike. Famous teaching in the Talmud. No two people think alike and no two people look alike. Because therefore, every single person can and should say, the world was created for me, which means that I have a responsibility. I carry a whole world over me. And here we're taught that when somebody comes to you with a request to do a mitzvah or with an opportunity to do something life-saving or what have you, you should never say, listen, I've done enough. Let somebody else do it. The person has to say, the world was created for me. Right now, I will either bring the world to a tremendous level of merit, or God forbid the opposite. It's all about me. Now, back to the witnesses. We're scaring the witnesses. We're telling you you're about to testify to take a life. Watch out. Yet we also say to the witnesses, perhaps you'll say, who needs this trouble? So we won't testify. Leave us alone. Mind your own business. Like the foreman of the Jewish jury said, we decided not to get involved. The Pesach tells us that a witness must get involved. Who aided his witness? He has to testify. You can't elect not to testify. If you do, it's a sin. Or perhaps you'll say, Why should we be guilty of taking this man's blood? The verse says, When wicked people are lost, there's joy brought to the world. When you kill a bad guy, it's a mitzvah. And this is a very important message to those who defend bad guys. Who say, so what if he's a mass murderer? What are you going to gain by killing him? He's a wonderful human being. All right, so he's an axe murderer. If the witnesses stood firm in their position, then that was the introduction. You take the senior witness, and you begin to individually cross him, cross-examine him and question him with all kinds of questions as we will explain in the laws of witnesses which talks about witnesses but essentially there are two categories one is general factors what day of the week was it how was the weather what color was the terrain was it green and so on and so forth was there a lot of traffic was it raining was it snowing those are all what color shirt was he wearing those are all general questions then there are specific questions what did he look like what did you, did you see him do it what did the murder weapon look like and so on those are the more serious questions so there are a set of general and a set of specific very pointed questions which we will go into in great detail if his witness, if his testimony is exactable, he's on the mark, then we take the second witness in, we interrogate him, we question and cross-examine him like we did the first one. Even if this group had a hundred witnesses, we figure we already cross-examined and questioned two. Two is all we need. No, because they came in a group. One person in the group can invalidate the whole group. We have to interrogate and cross-examine each one. Again, which is why if you want to convict someone, don't come in a group with more than two. If it appears that the words of the witnesses are correct, they're focused, they're valid, as we learned earlier, the Sanhedrin of 23, which is the minimum number of Sanhedrin which try a capital case, one of them has to begin by making a statement for the defense. 
can make sure the honor be explained. The an example of a statement for the defense is they tell him, listen, mister, in if you didn't sin, don't be afraid of what they say. If you didn't sin, it ain't gonna hurt you. We judge him if a merit was found for him. In other words, he was found not guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt. Meaning, there was a vote. And there was a majority of one, as we learned earlier. He's acquitted. But if they could not acquit him, then they always imprison him until the following day because criminal, I'm sorry, capital issues are never decided in finality on the, on the same day. There always has to be a night to sleep on it. Always. So they arrest him. And in general, imprisoning is not something that's used in Jewish law except as a holding tank. For example, here. They arrest him and put him in prison until the morning. And that day already, the Sanhedrin, which is this court of 23, break up into pairs, like study buddies, like a yeshiva team. You have a yeshiva, you have two people studying with each other. And they begin to debate each other. You ever walk into a yeshiva? The decibel level is horrendous. Everybody screams, what are you screaming for? Because that's what we do in yeshivas, we scream. That's, uh, that culture is sponsored by the Tylenol industry. The Sanhedrin, as they break up into pairs, they limit their intake of food. They may not drink wine at all. Because we don't want an inebriated Sanhedrin to find someone guilty of death penalty. And they debate the issue, call all night. with his partner, or himself, even at home. So what do they do at night? They debate. With a study buddy, with a partner, or on their own. The next morning, they come to court early, and they take the final vote. First, they wrap it up. The one who argued for acquittal yesterday says, I am the guy who argued for acquittal. I'm still arguing for acquittal. I am consistent. I'm the guy who argued for finding him guilty. He says, I'm that guy who argued for guilt. I'm still arguing for guilt. Or perhaps he could say, I no longer am lobbying for guilt. I've now become on the acquittal team. They made a mistake. They have no idea. They don't remember who said what or what was the logic. Because we said earlier that if two people argue acquitted for the same argument, for the same reason, it's one. Because it's the same logic. So we have the court reporters. And the court reporter knows exactly who lobbied for what. So they remind him, uh-uh, yesterday you were arguing for acquittal. Because that's why the court reporters are there. They write down not only what the lobbying effort of this fellow was, but also the why. Now we begin to take the final tally. Remember what we learned earlier with the final tally? The court is 23. If there's a majority of two for guilt, the guy's found guilty. If there's a majority even of one for acquittal, the guy is acquitted. If one guy says, I don't know, or there's a tie, or they can't work it out, they add members to the 23-member court, and they add in twos. 25, 27, 29. We learned all that earlier. In Motsulay Schuss, if they found a argument for acquittal, Taru, they acquit him. In Hutzkolahis, if they have to add judges, as we learned earlier, by Sifim, we add judges. Rabu, Hamechayivim, if the judges who vote guilty are more, then it's Chayiv, and we learned earlier, a majority of two or more. Now, there's something very interesting in our world. In our world, we have something called death row. The guy is condemned to death. He's given the death penalty, and they put him on death row. How long does he stay on death row? You would imagine 20 minutes. The answer is sometimes 20 years. Because that's when the appeals first begin, and that's when the lobbying first begins, and that's where all the Mishigas begins. In Jewish law, there is no death row. In Jewish law, when a guy is found for death penalty, when a guy is found guilty, and he is given death penalty, which is very rare, then we don't want to torment him. We want to kill him right away. Don't torture him. The opposite of death row. They take him out to kill him immediately. However, the place where the death penalty took place was not in the court. was outside the courthouse. was quite a distance from the courthouse. Shenem, as it says, Hotsei es This particular verse discusses a blasphemer. Take out the blasphemer, El Nichus outside the camp. Now the Rambam contributes something from his own logic. The Yerali, it appears to me, in other words, usually when the Rambam brings down something, it's either from the Mishnah or the Gemara or from his teacher, the Reef, or from his teacher's teacher, the Rimigash, it's usually sourced somewhere. Occasionally the Rambam quotes his own logic. And when that happens, he either says, it appears to me, or I say, when you're going to design the death penalty arena, make it about six million away. Now, in these United States, when we talk about distance, we talk about miles. 
a meal is not a mile. A meal is much closer to a kilometer. So figure it's about six kilometers away, which is a walk. As it was in the court of Moshe Rabbeinu. Where was Moshe Rabbeinu's court? In the Mishkan area, in the courtyard. Was at the doorway of the tabernacle. How big? One second. Where was the tabernacle located in the court of the, uh, in the dwelling place in the desert? The answer is in the middle. You had the four banners, east, west, north, side. The tabernacle was smack in the middle. How big was the camp of the Jewish people in the desert? Our sages say 12 mil. English, 12 kilometers. Therefore, the court is in the middle. How far is the middle of 12 kilometers, which is 6 kilometers? From the end, 6 kilometers. Therefore, says the Rambam, that should be the ideal distance of the death penalty arena, about 6 kilometers from the courthouse, as it was by Moshe Rabbeinu. Dalit, 4. Mishanig Mardinai, once the judgment has been pronounced, remember, there are 23 or more judges, and you have a majority of two, and they debated it, and they are great judges, and it's not simple. This is not some kangaroo court. These are great Torah scholars. If he's found that he has to be killed, we do not leave him just he must be killed on the same day that the sentence is issued. Death sentence, dead. Furthermore, now we're soon going to be learning that there's a whole process where they take him on the way to six kilometers and they go slowly and they have a signal handkerchief and they wave it in case somebody came and said, hey, I have new information. That, yes. But we don't put him on death row. There's no such animal. Furthermore, even if it was a woman who was found guilty and given the death penalty and she was pregnant. She's nine months pregnant. She's full term. We do not wait for her to give birth. And here there's a principle of Uber Yerech Imo. A baby is an extension of the body of his mother. A baby is not a separate life until it's born. Therefore, there's no reason that we should wait until this baby is born. Otherwise, you'll be waiting for all kinds of stuff. There's a beautiful joke to tell. That there were these three people who were condemned to death. And he said, you know, we, we, we may have condemned you to death, but we're nice people. What would you like to eat before we kill you? And he says, I'd like a steak medium well. He says, done. Make a mistake. The other guy says, I'd like a case of wine. Done. The other fellow says, I'd like some fresh strawberries. He says, I'm sorry, sir. Strawberries are out of season. He says, I'll wait. I'll wait. So here he cannot order fresh strawberries. Frozen, yes. I'll wait. Cupside. So you don't wait for her to have a baby. Otherwise, you'll be waiting for the strawberries too. And first, they give her a blow in the area of the fetus to kill the fetus. Actually, we want the fetus to die first because we don't want the fetus to be born from a dead mother. That is so if she did not go into labor. But if she's already in labor, that's different. We wait until she gives birth. Rashi and others explain that if the fetus is not killed first, as we said earlier, it may emerge after the woman's death, and that results in the denigration of her corpse. Her corpse has to be immediately disposed of in a respectable way. Now, the Rambam comes for it with an interesting teaching. In general, when somebody dies, the body has to be buried, and the body has to be respected, and you can't utilize any body parts, and so on and so forth. There's one exception, and that is hair. Because hair is considered a total separate entity. To prove that a person's hair could be cut, and he won't feel it. People don't feel pain. By the way, if you go to your barber and you feel pain when you cut your hair, you should switch barbers. The Chol Isha, it actually says that the Rabbi Chavar Goen, who was a great uh, genius, an Einstein-level genius and more, he had, he was, he was a person who was like a Nazir, he undertook to have long hair, he didn't cut his hair because his hair hurt him when they cut his hair, he was at such refined intellect. Back to this interesting law here that he brings down. The Chol Isha when a woman is killed, assuming she had hair, long beautiful hair, they can cut her hair off and make a shekel out of it. So this is the one arena where use is permitted. Now he closes with the following law, if someone is taken out to be killed, and he had already brought a sacrifice to the Holy Temple, the sacrifice was already slaughtered. And they're just waiting for the Kohanim to do the ritual, as we learned in great detail, in great detail much earlier. In Ergenese, we do not kill him, until the Kohen sprinkles the blood on his behalf, both from his sin offering as well as from his guilt offering, so that let him at least receive the atonement in full before he dies for whatever sin he brought that offering for. Otherwise, we got a problem because he can't sprinkle the blood later. In Nigmar Dinai, commentaries here say, but a burnt offering, the blood could be sprinkled even if he passes away, as we brought down in Gemara, Erechen, and so on. Okay. In Nigmar Dinai, but if his case was brought to full judgment, and the offering has not yet been slaughtered. 
So we don't say, let the Kohen just go as far as, no, hey, we do not wait. for them to bring the offering. We never prolong the judgment. And there's an interesting note here where our assumption is that it's more desirable for him to be executed immediately than to wait for the sacrifice to be offered because he'll freak out. We do not offer such sacrifices after his death, for once a person has passed away, these sacrifices cannot procure atonement. And we learned all of these laws in Hilchesh Gogos, chapter 3. Okay, end of chapter 12.